0: Hang on go all right yeah so, so this morning we're going to be wrapping up our series on unsung heroes and we're going to be talking about Hannah and if I'd have known uh, that I was supposed to preach ya, like Matt said I might have dressed a little differently uh, maybe not sandals and a t-shirt uh, but instead today you just get me this is this is just me and actually that's kind of what this message uh, is about so so that's that's what we're going to get. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about Hannah and uh, Hannah's story is found in the book of 1 Samuel in chapters 1 and 2. And and the gist of the story is this, Hannah uh, is a a barren woman, She's, she's got no children and she goes before God and asks for a child. God hears her prayer, God remembers Hannah. And God gives her a child. She becomes pregnant. She gives birth to Samuel. Uh, She had had made an oath to God that if he would give her a child, she would return that child back to God to serve in the tabernacle. And so she follows through. uh, She receives this blessing of a child. She follows through. She takes the child, Samuel, back to serve in the tabernacle. There is uh, an incredible moment after she's been blessed with this child where Hannah uh, makes this prayer, this declaration, which is in uh, the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 2, that just uh, extols the virtues of God, who God is, what he has done, praises to God, and it's an incredible uh, kind of piece of of poetry and and a psalm. And then the story goes on, uh, kind of a couple of more details are that you know, Hannah continues to return every year back to the house of the Lord at Shiloh with Tabernacle, uh, checking in on Samuel, bringing him a, a new little robe every year. Uh, and then finally, um, we, we read that God continues to remember Hannah and blesses her with yet uh, more children after that as well. And I have to be honest, I, when I think about this series and Unsung Heroes, I don't necessarily think the story of Hannah is particularly unsung. Uh, I mean, she's, she's the mother of Samuel, who's this great prophet. Uh, he kind of has a, a pretty big role. It's what this book uh, that we're reading out of is named after. First Samuel, second Samuel, even got a sequel. So, uh, pretty big name there, pretty big story. Uh, And at least, and maybe it's just me, uh, but I feel like I'm pretty familiar with that that story I just told. The story of great faith. Uh, I've heard a lot about the great faith of Hannah. The great faith she had to ask God for this this gift. uh, To have faith that when she received that, to then give that child that she had desired back to God. God's faithfulness, right, to, to give the child, uh, and then again to bless Hannah with yet more children later on. Uh, the great faithfulness of then who Samuel would become. And so I'm, I'm familiar with that, and this, this is an incredible story uh, of Hannah and a story of that, that great faith. But as I thought about this story, and I thought about this idea of, of the unsung heroes, I wondered if maybe that familiarity, at least that I had with the story of Hannah, uh, and jumping right to that part where God answers the prayer, gives the child, and wow, isn't it amazing that Hannah has faith to give that child back to God. I wondered if jumping there in the story kind of made me overlook or brush past a bit what, as I reflected on the story and kept coming back to what I think maybe is the most unsung part of the story of Hannah. And so I want to go back to the beginning of the story and what happens right at first. So if this is a, if this is one of those, you know, how it started, how it's going, uh, kind of a story or a meme or whatever, I want to go back to how it started. I want to look at Hannah at the beginning of the story where she's she's kind of a mess. And actually she's in the tabernacle and being mistaken for being drunk. And what's going on there? I want to look at how it started. So I'm going to start and I'm just going to read uh, starting in, in 1 Samuel verse 3. So she uh, she's the wife of a man named Alkanah who's an Ephraimite and he's got two wives it's kind of important to remember one has children a one named Panina has children Hannah has no children and then starting in verse 3 it says year after year this man went up from the town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh where Hophni and Phinehas the two sons of Eli were priests of the Lord whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice he would give portions of the meat to his wife Panina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking at Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked for. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. And so you see, I think at this part of the story, that we can take notice not just of what Hannah asks for and not just of the great blessing of this child that she receives, but but we can look first at how how she asks, how she comes to God. And I think the first thing we see is that Hannah has come to God unfiltered. I'm gonna think about the words that are used to describe Hannah in the tabernacle. Some of the the words she even uses to describe herself. It says she wept and would not eat. She was downhearted in her deep anguish, weeping bitterly. Uh, She says to to God, look on your servant's misery. She's deeply troubled. She's pouring out her soul. Then she, she responds to Eli, I have been praying here. Out of my great anguish and grief so it seems like hannah didn't get the memo that you're kind of supposed to pull it all together before you go to church right she didn't get up and put on the happy face before she walked through the front doors and i think it it, there seems to be a bit of a joke or a kind of a common shared experience at least for a lot of us who grew up going to church of like the the sunday morning right where everything's kind of chaos at home. You're getting ready, you're rushing around, the kids are fighting, mom's crying, dad's yelling, you're jumping in the car, you're racing through the stoplights, you're trying to get there on time. You, pull, you screech in the parking lot, you rush up, and you get to the front door, and then it's like, hey, good morning, how are you? Well, you know, I woke up this morning with the sun on my face and the praises of the Lord in my heart, and everything's good right there's kind of this sense kind of this sense that we're always supposed to to have a smile on right rejoice in the Lord always but I'm afraid that for some it it, it may be a little bit a little bit deeper than that than just that frantic uh, that frantic rush to church that we can joke about but there may be real pain right there may be real deep anguish like Hannah here and sometimes, whether it's directly said uh, to us or maybe we do it to ourselves, there may be this feeling that that kind of thing is supposed to be kept down inside. We gotta bottle it up. We gotta we gotta hide that away. That's not really uh, appropriate for church. But here's Hannah, whose anguish is very real and very a parent. Now I, I can't or and I won't try to say that I can relate or that I know how it feels uh, to be a woman in Hannah's situation, a woman facing infertility, a, a, a barren woman, um, but I don't know I, I mean you don't have to have probably more than one conversation with someone, a woman, a, a couple going through that kind of pain and even if they think they're putting on a strong face you can you can feel the weight of that you can sense the weight of that and that's hard enough but then think about hannah and think about the time and the place that she's in as a woman and and the pressure or the cultural perspective that was on her. And we might say it's not right. We might look at it now and think, well, that's not that's not right. And there's a lot going on in this story. And there's a lot of things that we could wrestle with, that we could pick apart. Maybe we need to just do a whole a whole series on on 1 Samuel. Maybe we need to take this on in some of our Sunday afternoon classes in the future. But the, the fact of the matter is Hannah is dealing with this situation where everything around her tells her that her main purpose maybe her only purpose as a woman is to bear children that's her identity that's her future and it's broken and not only that but she's got the other wife there's another one that you can put on the list of things we might want to wrestle with the whole uh two-wife thing is going on. And she's got this other wife, Penina, who is just tearing her down. And then finally, yet another thing to go on this list if you're keeping track of things that we've got to come back to and we've got to wrestle with, she is essentially told that it was the Lord who has closed her womb. I don't really know how you deal with that this is a woman of true sorrow but instead of stuffing it down keeping it down hiding it down deep inside she comes to God with the full weight of emotion and all of her grief but it seems, if we look at the reaction of some of the men in the story, that maybe their, the experience was possibly similar to some of our, our church experience and you weren't necessarily supposed to do things like that. I mean, first of all, we, we've got Eli, who instead of, uh, instead of looking at her in this state and, and first thinking, well, oh, this must be somebody who's really bearing their soul to the Lord. He thinks this has got to be something else. He's got to find some other way to explain this. He thinks that she's drunk. He kind of defaults to that hysterical woman kind of stereotype. Like, oh, this, this behavior is a problem, and we need to get it out of here you know, before it bothers somebody. But even before that, actually, we see her husband, Elkanah, and... And maybe um, maybe his intentions were good, probably. Probably his intentions were good. It does say, you know, it talks in this verse how much he loved her. He loved her the most, but basically he, he seems like he's kind of trying to, to shake her out of it a little bit, you know? He says, he tries to cheer her up. Why, Why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? So this is before she's kind of heading up right into the tabernacle to pray and, and she's in this state and he's kind of trying to, I don't know, trying to get her to put on the happy face. Oh, don't cry, you know, look on the bright side. At least you've got me and I love you so much, right? And I think we, we've we literally got thousands of years of hindsight to know that that line was never going to work. <laughs> but he's, he's, he's trying to get her it seems like he's trying to get her to move on from this place of grief before she's ready, before she's had a chance to have any kind of resolution for it. And I know, I know sometimes it, that can be helpful. That can be helpful to, to look on the bright side, to kind of see the silver lining, maybe even to distract someone else or ourselves uh, from some pain or a problem. I know like sometimes I'll, if my kids are sad or hurt, I'll try to do something silly, maybe to make them laugh, right? To get their mind off of it, maybe to help them snap out of it a little bit. But to push past or to try to sidestep this process of grief or to act like those emotions uh, or or, um, those emotions that they're unwelcome or they're inappropriate can only bring more hurt and more pain. We don't always have to have an explanation, or to feel like we've got to make it better right away, or to try to fix it. Though, um, though we haven't, Jessica and I haven't haven't de- dealt with this, you know, infertility, in particular. We we have experienced years ago um, kind of a related pain of, of miscarriage. And I can remember getting some of those comments about how, you know, it's all going to be okay. It's all part of God's plan. It's God's will. You know, some of them were like, maybe maybe God knew in His divine wisdom that, you know, like this kind of thing was going to happen or this problem would have come about. And in God's grace, He spared you or He spared this child from whatever it might have been and i know people mean well and for being honest like maybe you or i have said those kinds of things to people in pain before and and everyone we're all just we're all just trying to square what we see and experience in the world And what we believe or understand about God and his sovereignty. And I get that. And maybe that's a little bit of what's going on when it says here that, you know, it was God who closed Hannah's womb. People are trying to figure out how this all goes together. But I will tell you this. That didn't help when people had those kinds of things to say. That didn't help. I did not want to hear, cheer up. God's got it all under control. It's all part of his plan. Because all that meant to me was that we had lost our baby and God's will felt really cold and heartless. I did, however, I did find a little bit of relief, a little bit of comfort, In believing that actually God hated death. That that was part of the brokenness of the world that we live in. And that was what God had been from the beginning. Working to defeat. That his, uh, that, that, that he had the victory. But there was still this lingering, these lingering effects of that brokenness in our world. And that actually his heart ached. Over the loss of of our child just as much, maybe even more than mine did. It didn't make it go away. It didn't suddenly make things better. It didn't necessarily put a smile on my face. And that's kind of a bit of a big theological package, all that together, but it came It came out of a place of being in my grief but sensing or feeling like or or believing that God was right there with me in that that he was weeping with me that he wasn't repulsed by or or too lofty for my tears and my snot and my pounding fists And I'd like to think that maybe this is a little bit of what Hannah found. And then I look at verse 18, where it says she went on her way, ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. So basically, kind of what Elkanah, her husband, was trying to tell her to do, but before she had had this space, to really bear her soul to God. But this is still before that that prayer had been answered with the child. And so something has taken place in this story simply in Hannah meeting with God in her place of grief. I think there's yet another Profound insight to see in Hannah's approach to God here, and and this this other way of looking at it, I, I have to thank my sister uh, for bringing this to my attention. You see, when uh, when Kat first asked me to preach uh, in this series, I told her that she ought to just get all women to fill all the slots and preach this series, but she insisted that I consider being on the schedule for this series, so I figured that the next best thing was just to lean into some of the most important women in my life to go ahead and give me their thoughts and perspectives and insights from Hannah's story. And my sister happens to be a Bible college professor, so she's usually pretty good for some biblical insights. And while I did stop short of just asking her to write the whole sermon for me, one one simple thing that she highlighted really stood out to me, and actually has has really had a lot of influence as I've thought through this story over uh, these past couple of weeks. And so this is what she said. She wrote to me, and she said, "I've always found it interesting that Eli would make the assumption that Hannah was drunk. It could perhaps, uh, it could be perhaps that he's just never seen a woman." having an emotional conversation with the Lord like that. Very possible. But I've wondered if he's ever seen anyone have a conversation like that with the Lord. I do think from studying Old Testament history and recognizing the distance between Yahweh and his people that this actually makes sense. The priests in the Old Testament were to offer sacrifices and prayers on behalf of the people. So in the common Israelite mindset, what good would it do to have an emotional conversation with the Lord? Would he even listen? Can God even hear a common person? So I look at Hannah and I see that that, that, that not just breaking the mold by coming and praying unfiltered with all of her emotions, uh, in the tabernacle before God, before that, she's, she's breaking the mold just by coming to God in this direct and intimate sense just from the very start. So, so even if it wasn't this kind of emotional state that we are like, oh, I don't know if this belongs in church, for that, she has come to God speaking to God directly and intimately. And we have to wonder. Wait a second, is this even done? Because if we look at Scripture, much of of Scripture, between, let's say, kind of the Genesis and Exodus account where the people of Israel, God's people, are established, between that and then where we come into this story in 1 Samuel, a lot of what lies in between there is a lot of rules and laws and kind of setting up this uh, Levitical priesthood And how they're specifically supposed to carry out everything Um, and so there's a lot of structure in place and how this is supposed to work and that doesn't really look like what Hannah's doing here. Instead we've got her coming and talking to God and and even Even in what we read, often what we do is, well, we're looking at it from the perspective of the leaders, you know, like the prophets and the patriarchs, it's the ones who who wrote it down, or the ones who are featured prominently in the story. And so even if we were to look at it and say, well, I do see, you know, these people talking to God, these are not the regular folk. And actually, if we look carefully, if we read carefully, it really seems... That by and large the people, the common people of Israel didn't often seem to know God all that much at all. And Hannah wasn't someone special coming into this story. We know of Hannah because of this story, not because she's not in this story because she came into it uh, in some kind of a special position or in a particular uh, of a particular lineage. In fact, The standout feature really of this story, uh, one of the standout features is that this whole saga tells of this woman who has this son Samuel, who goes to serve in the tabernacle, and he's raised up, becomes this great prophet of the Lord, all the while specifically not of the Levitical priestly Lineage, all the while, at the same time, if you read through more of this story on into uh, chapter 2, and you start to learn about the priest and the, the sons of Eli, contrast them with these wicked sons of Eli who are of this priestly lineage, but all the while they are abusing their power position and they're basically doing everything opposite of all these rules and the ways they're supposed to conduct themselves as priests. And yet Eli looks on Hannah and what she is doing, and it's so far out of his paradigm that he's got to find some other way to explain it. And so he thinks that she's drunk. There's impropriety going on in the house of the Lord, but at the same time, either out of blind ignorance or some kind of willful Neglect. It seems that at least for some time he's been unaware of the very improper actions of his sons as priests doing all these wicked things uh, in the house of the Lord. And so Hannah here, she reaches out to God and it's not really through in the way this structure has designated it. It's not through the priests. Who seen as far away from God as just about anybody at this point in the story, but she reaches out directly and intimately. She's not got a lot of precedent for this. You could say she's a bit ahead of her time, or she's a kind of a pioneer, but somehow she's got the, the courage, or she's got the boldness to do this, and through it she becomes this example, this model that, you know, the, the priesthood was to be this model for Uh, For the people of Israel, this priesthood, they were called a kingdom of priests. They were to be all priests, and they had this example within them, and yet Hannah becomes this model of seeking the Lord and following the Lord and showing us today who God is and the access that we have to Him. But we can wonder, was it courage? Was it boldness to go straight to God in this way? When she came sobbing in her anguish, was it a sense of freedom before God to be herself? Is that what enabled her to do that? Or was it desperation? Her burden was so heavy She was not really getting any real help from anywhere else around her. And the only place to turn was to the one she had been told had made her this way to begin with. Is God really there? Does the creator of all things who has told us be fruitful and multiply, multiply, but who has supposedly closed my womb, does he even care? Will my outcry be heard? So was it Hannah's great faith that brought her before God with this request, or was it the desperate cry of a weary and broken heart? Is it one or the other? Desperation or faith? Is there a place where those meet? In the book of Exodus it tells us of the Israelites fleeing through the desert and they find themselves trapped between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea and God opens a path for them to cross. And then in the New Testament later Hebrews 11:29 tells us that by faith the people passed through the Red Sea by faith. Did they really have anywhere else to turn? The New Testament tells us of a a Canaanite woman who came crying out to Jesus to heal her demon-possessed daughter and then even after being compared to a dog, asks if she could still just have yet but a crumb of that blessing from Jesus. That seems pretty desperate. And Jesus says, great faith. Again, a woman comes to Jesus, bleeding for 12 years. Failure after failure to find relief with the doctors. All her money's gone. And she reaches out just to touch the edge of Jesus' robe. And Jesus says, daughter, your faith healed you so while we certainly have a tremendous tale of faith in Hannah where where she shows a great faith in God to provide a great faith then to return what she had so desperately desired back to God and to follow through with that promise of God's faithfulness to answer Hannah's prayer and Samuel Uh, With Samuel, and again to bless her with more children later on. First, we have a story of a desperate faith, of a messy faith, a faith through which she discovered not only that God would meet her need, but that God would meet her in her need. That she could come as who she was with all the weight of her pain and her deep emotions and God would be there. That she could seek Him directly. That she could seek Him intimately and He would not be far off. And I've put so much weight on just this first part of the story because it's this kind of faith. It's this kind of interaction between Hannah and God that really pushes the rest of the story forward. God gives us this story of of Hannah right at the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. That's going to go on to tell us about kings, about king makers and kings and battles and power players. And yes, it starts with the story of a desperate woman coming desperately before God. And that desperate faith that revealed a God who is there in your deepest pain and deepest desire built the faith that allowed her to entrust that child so desperately desired back into the care of that God. And then the the amazing words that come in chapter 2 and read read chapter 2. I'm not going to read it all right now. Read Hannah's declaration, her prayer, her song, It's a psalm, it's a prophetic word, whatever you want to call it. It's all of those things. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. These breathtaking words of Hannah come out of knowing a God who not just gave the gift of a child, but who was with her in the trenches. She says in chapter 2, verse 3, that the Lord is a God who knows. And she says that because she's experienced it. She, she tells of God who uh, who takes the lofty and the arrogant down low and who lifts up the lowly and she knows this because she's experienced a God who reached down low to lift up a broken and barren woman she's empowered by God to give uh, a testimony uh, a prophecy in verse 10 chapter 2 verse 10. It says that he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And this is telling before it ever happens what's going to happen in the book of Samuel that's led by this story of Hannah. It's telling of her son who's going to be this kingmaker, the one who anoints Saul, King Saul, who's going to be a contrast, a king whose power gets to his head, contrasted with a god, who came near to a broken woman. It's going to tell the story of uh, King David who is anointed and is a king and a man who's after God's own heart. And we can only understand this really through Hannah's story. It's going to tell of King David who goes on to write all these psalms, many of which mirror, mirror these very words and these desperate cries that we see coming from Hannah, and we see told about in these words. But it tells us more than that. And that's the amazing thing about these kinds of words in the Old Testament, whether the person speaking them know, or the person writing them down even know that many times these words not just speak of what's happening right then or what is about to come, but they tell the story much further to come. And these words of the anointed one and the king also speak of King Jesus, who we can know even better through Hannah's story because Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Come down to know us in the realness and the rawness of our humanity. A king who would speak, blessed are the poor in spirit. That kind of describes Hannah whose death, at whose death, the death of Jesus, that curtain in the temple that divided us from intimacy with God would be torn in two, something that Hannah showed us ahead of time, way back in First Samuel. And I don't think that this declaration that she speaks in, in chapter two, verse one through 10, would have been able to be attributed to her, would have been the words of Hannah, without her coming to know God, as she did in chapter 1. This was, was Hannah's song. We sang this song today, The Goodness of God, right? And as we were singing it, I was like, okay, i got to grab this sheet. Your mercy never fails. All my life you have been faithful. You've led me through the fire in the darkest nights. These words of Hannah, this declaration... Of hers. This is her, her song, but that song could not have been written had she not experienced that with God in her prayer of desperation at the beginning of the chapter. And as I was preparing for this, I was doing some reading to see what others had to say about Hannah. I was reading some articles and some blogs, and I came across one and it had a lot of really nice things to say, but. As I read, it kind of felt like maybe we were reading from two different Bibles sometimes. I felt like it was kind of trying to tell that story that I feel like at least at the beginning was the opposite of Hannah's story. It kind of tried to tell that story of the the strong face, right? The smiling face. I'll just read you a couple of these quick lines. It says, I feel like we all eventually get to this place when we walk through tough times. But Hannah's decision not to throw a royal fit or punch her husband's other wife or become the village wine addict is inspiring and should stir something in all of us. It takes strength and faith and discipline and self-control to display the kind of behavior Hannah did in her situation. Choosing to be a godly woman clothed with strength and dignity even in our darkest days And that sounds nice, but I just don't know if that's the story I read of Hannah. Strength and discipline and self-control, clothed with dignity. Yes, we can, we can grow into that, and we can see where God is going in the story, but, but that's just not necessarily what's right there at the beginning. I don't want to rush past to find that that place of strength and dignity without recognizing what I feel like God welcomes us into. To see how Hannah came to God in the tabernacle before the blessing was fulfilled, before these confident words of chapter 2 were proclaimed, She did throw a fit, and she came shaky, and she came broken, she came breaking all the rules, she came undignified, and God was there.